our word from Scripture today for consideration. I've actually taken a massive chunk of Scripture and tried to break it down into two sections. It's a story that was much better known by the early Christian church than it is by people in the church today. Usually it's called Korah's Rebellion. We're looking in December at some stories from the book of Numbers. And Numbers, if you don't know in the Bible, it's one of those early books, but it's a continuation of what happens in Exodus. A lot of people have heard of Moses and Moses and the enslavement in Egypt. And they get out of Egypt and they cross through the Red Sea and they go to Mount Sinai and they get the commandments. And for a lot of people, that's kind of where the story ends. The book of Numbers picks up right there. After we receive message from God, what does he want us to do? And what the Israelites unfortunately start doing is just grumbling in life. And it gets to the point where grumbling, when you get enough people doing it, it becomes a rebellion. And that's what we see here in number 16. We're going to look at a couple important characters, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And here's the first half of it. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab and own son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. And with them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. And they came as a group to oppose Aaron and Moses and said to them, you guys have gone too far. The whole community is holy. In other words, what they're saying is, you guys think you're holy, but actually all of us are holy. Every one of us is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you, Moses and Aaron, set yourselves up above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down, and he said to Korah and all his followers in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near. The man he chooses will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites are the ones who have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near him himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? It's a great question about grumbling, by the way. Isn't it enough? Instead of just focusing on all the stuff that you don't have that's not going quite right in the wilderness of life, isn't it enough that God provides for you daily and he's got you on track to paradise? Is that not enough reason to praise him? Or are we going to grumble? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers are banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliah, but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? They're talking about slavery in Egypt, by the way. That's how delusional they are. Those good old days back in Egypt. You brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us out here in the wilderness? No. And now you also want to lord it all over us. Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land that you told us about, or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I haven't taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. 
Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and now present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and they cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? And then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. As soon as he, he's here as Moses, as soon as Moses finished saying all these things, the ground under the rebels split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those who associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead. Just imagine how scary that'd be. You're being buried alive. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. It's all in one day. And the next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with the burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from that plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. And then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague finally stopped. This is God's word. Now, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, we started a worship series on the book of Numbers. I told you at the beginning, what Numbers is, is it's a continuation of the book of Exodus. The children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, but they struggle with grumbling. One of the main themes of the book of Numbers is that discontentment with life and distrust in your God-given leaders in life and disbelief in God's promises in life will make you unnecessarily pained and make life unnecessarily complicated and it's self-inflicted wounds when we're discontent with life, when we distrust our God-given leaders and when we don't believe God's promises. And actually, unrepentance of all of that, unrepentance of that disbelief will ultimately, it could lead to the forfeiture of being able to enter into the promised land just like it metaphorically did with those Israelites. And what we see every day, the Israelites are grumbling. 
God is literally miraculously providing food for them. It's called manna on the ground every day. And you know what? They complain because they don't have enough diversity in their cuisine. And they're going to grumble. Miriam and Aaron are like the second and third most influential people in all of Israel. And yet a couple weeks ago, we saw that they're complaining. They're grumbling against Moses. Why? Because their little brother's got a little bit more notoriety than they do. See, it's not that these people don't have anything. It's that they think what I don't have is as good as what I deserve. And so I'm empowered to grumble. And this rebellion has been brewing for a number of chapters already. And actually, it's such a big event. You guys, we might not have ever heard of Korah's rebellion before. New Testament church knew exactly what this was. In fact, Jesus' brother Jude, in his letter in the New Testament, is talking about false teachers. And he says, Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. You see, Korah's rebellion... It was what's called archetypal. It was prototypical of what happens. This is what happens when you defy God's appointed leaders in life is the whole idea of Korah's rebellion. We also, you know, we don't even know the exact time that it happens. This is kind of interesting too. Some Bible scholars will tell you that it happens all the way like 38 years deep into the Israelites wandering around the wilderness. So almost 40 years in. Other ones will tell you it happens almost right at the beginning. Like when the Israelites sent spies into the promised land, And they saw the Canaanites and they're huge and they come back with this pessimistic report. There's no way we can defeat them, even though God has told us we would. There's no way. And they start grumbling. We don't know exactly when it happens. And you know what? I think that's intentional. I think we don't know because grumbling is universal. In other words, grumbling doesn't happen because of circumstances. We always think we grumble because we have justifiable circumstances. No, we don't. You don't grumble because of circumstances. You grumble because of ingratitude in the heart and discontentment in life. In a fallen world, you could grumble every day of your life pretty easily and justifiably. Or you could choose not to. That's the difference. The difference isn't circumstances. The difference is the posture and humility of your heart. And the Israelites are grumbling right now. And the leaders, they're interesting characters because Korah, Dathan, and Abiram are the three guys we got to zero in on. Korah is from the tribe of Levi. If you don't know, the Levites were like the priests, but they also were the people who worked around the tabernacle and the temple. Specifically, they're divided into a couple different families. Korah is in the tribe of Levi. He's from the family of Kohath. And you know what the Kohathites did? They were movers. They were professional movers. They packed up the tabernacle and they moved from location to location. It wasn't quite as glamorous as the priests and Korah didn't like that. That wasn't quite right. He said, we're just as holy as you are. We we work just as hard as you are, but you guys get a lot more credit than we do. He's not okay with it. Dathan and Abiram, almost the exact same thing. They're not from the tribe of Levi. They're from the tribe of Reuben. And some of you who know your Old Testaments really well might know Reuben, He's the oldest son of the 12 sons of Jacob. In ancient times, the oldest son was always a position of prominence. Were the Ruminites particularly special amongst the Israelites? No. They didn't really have any kind of leadership. And that's not right. That's not right. We got reason to grumble. We've been injustice. So it's not that they don't have anything. It's that they don't have what they think from a worldly perspective they deserve. You know what it reminds me of? I know some of you are not at all like uh, superhero, supervillain, Marvel and DC fans. I'm not completely either. But I do think one of the things that I think is the most interesting about superheroes and supervillains is they all got origin stories. Like they all come from somewhere. And the thing about supervillains is they're almost never innately wicked. They're always like semi-justifiably disgruntled and almost kind of sympathetic. So if you look at some of the most famous supervillains that are out there in your Marvel movies, a guy like Magneto, 
Magneto is actually the main enemy of like the X-Men and he grew up in Holocaust camps and he watched his family get killed, which will do a number on anyone. And then uh, you have other villains like Joker, Mr. Freeze. They were trying to help out their families and it landed in tragedy and that's when they became mutants. And I remember reading one time that over half of all the supervillains in comic lore have some kind of paternal abuse and neglect in their history. See, they're semi-justifiably disgruntled and in some ways sympathetic. And you say, but that's not the reason for their rebellion. You know why? Because the superheroes, they all go through the same stuff too. See, it isn't like the supervillains faced adversity, but the superheroes had cushy lives. No, the superheroes went through just as much adversity in their childhood as the supervillains did. So the difference between the two is not whether or not you face adversity in a fallen world. The difference between the two is whether or not you wallow in your self-pity over the hardships that we might face in life. And so what we have here is a group of individuals in the supervillains in Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who think they are unjustifiably injusticed with no hope for a better future and nobody's standing up and advocating for me. And when that happens to you, if you feel unjustifiably wronged with no hope for the future and no one's standing up and advocating for you from your perspective, it often leads to a rebellion. And that's what happens with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they turn to Moses and Aaron and they say, you guys have gone too far. The whole community is holy. You, Moses and Aaron, you're not the only ones special around here. We're just as special as you are. We're just as holy as you are. Every one of us, and the Lord is with us too. Why then do you set yourselves up above the rest of the Lord's assembly? They convinced 250 leading men in Israel that Moses and Aaron, they weren't appointed by God. They appointed themselves over Israel because they thought they were superior to everybody else. That's what they convinced everyone. Whenever you have what's called like a hierarchy, a dominance hierarchy in society, and they're everywhere. They're, in, they're among siblings. There's hierarchies in homes. Uh, it's out in nature. It's in society. Oftentimes, those who are lower on the ladder in the hierarchy start shouting for equality. And sometimes that's completely justified, and sometimes it's not justified at all. Rest assured, if God is the one who established the hierarchy, we're not justified in rebelling against it. At that point, it simply becomes an issue of, do I believe God's word and God's will is in fact good for my life? Because all Israel was valuable to God. All Israel was designed by God to minister to the rest of the world. But all Israel was not supposed to have the exact same roles in life. He gave some to be this tribe and some to be that tribe. Some in this family, some in that family. Some were men, some were women, some were adults, some were children. They all had different roles. They're all valuable to God, but they all have different roles in the body. Therefore, the superficial explanation for Korah's rebellion is Moses and Aaron, you guys have been abusing your power and you said you were going to take us to the promised land and you failed on that. That's the superficial reason. That's what they've convinced themselves. The real reason for their rebellion, we already said it, discontentment with life, distrust in their God-given leaders, disbelief that God is ever going to actually make good on his promises. Let's start a rebellion. They tell Moses about their coming rebellion. And you know what he does? Did he catch it? He fell down before God. And he's falling down probably for two different reasons. One, he's humbling himself before God. Two, he's starting to mourn for his people. Because he knows Moses, he didn't want to be in charge of two million souls. 
Like, that's a lot of responsibility. Anybody who raises their hand for that, you should probably watch out for. That's a lot of responsibility. He was thrust into that position. He didn't appoint himself. He knows it wasn't his choice. It was God's choice. And so when Israel's rebelling against that, they're rebelling against God. And that ain't going to end well. And he starts mourning for them. And he says, okay, I'm going to let you guys figure out what this looks like. If you want to do the stuff that Aaron, the priestly family does, go ahead and try and let's see what happens. And so here's the challenge that he presents to them. He says, take the censers, that's the incense holders, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses is the one who is holy. He ends this whole section with an interesting statement we're going to come back to in our applications in just a minute. But he ends this whole section by saying, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the rest of the assembly, the non-rebels, get away. What's about to happen? You don't want to be anywhere near them. Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Okay, so the challenge is set. It's the next day. And it's not as though Korah, Dathan, and Abiram hadn't been warned. There was an incident earlier in Israel's history in Leviticus 10 where a couple guys tried to bring an offering. It's called offering unauthorized fire. They were trying to worship God on their own terms. Remember you'd say, God, uh, not only do I worship you, but I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm going to live my life on my own terms. Like, there's going to be fire that comes out from that. And there's fire that comes out and consumes those guys, Nadab and Abihu. And Israelites had seen this, so they know it's coming. But pride, I'll tell you what, pride often sort of blinds you to your own impending destruction. And so after Moses has said to the rest of the assembly, guys, get away from these individuals. I don't know what's coming, but here's what happens. As soon as Moses finished saying all this stuff, the ground under them split apart and the earth was opened It opened its mouth, it swallowed them and their households and all those who were associated with Korah together with all their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead. And Israel is completely horrified by this as uh, you and I would be too. And just in case anybody thinks this is just kind of some strange coincidence that swallowed up all of the rebels, it was just an earthquake. What God does is he has fire jump out from the tabernacle and consume the 250 guys who are trying to offer unauthorized fire so that they all know all of this. This is God's judgment. The rebels and their families are wiped out. Their possessions are gone from the planet. And this is when you challenge God's revealed will. When God says, this is the way it is, and you say, nope, we're going to do it on our own way. Your time and your impact on this planet becomes meaningless and forgettable, except as a warning of futility to everybody else. And all these leaders in Israel are consumed on this day. And you know what the next day, you know what happens? The Israelites come out and you say, okay, after we saw the hand of God and his punishment upon the wrongdoer, they're all going to shape up and they're all going to start behaving, right? That would be reasonable. Humans aren't inherently reasonable. Humans are inherently passionate. In moments of crisis, we do not default to thinking clearly. We default to our desires and what we want and what we feel. And in that moment, the only thing that a lot of the family members of those guys who, remember, You have 250 plus families in Israel who have lost the leader of their household and they're hurt, but they're channeling all their hurt in completely the wrong direction. I've counseled with many people over the years who are the exact same situation. They have gone through justifiable hurt, but they're looking for any kind of punching bag that they can take their anger and life out on. And it just is not productive for anybody. It's not productive for the community. 
These people are hurt and they're looking to punch Aaron and Moses. They say, you guys killed the Lord's people. Make no mistake, when they say the Lord's people, you know who they're talking about? Korah, Dathan, Abiram, the 250 leaders that God himself killed. These people are saying, Moses and Aaron, you're guilty. Those people, those were God's people. And God at this point, he's very patient, but he's had about enough of this. Except for a couple of very gracious mediators. And it's at this moment that Moses tells Aaron, the high priest of Israel, to do what? Take your censer, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Here's what's happening. On this day, when the Israelites are still grumbling after all this, God releases a plague that enters into the camps of Israel, and it's wiping through camp to camp to camp. And what Aaron does is he takes some incense, which is symbolic throughout the Bible of intercessory prayer. And he goes and puts himself in front of the plague between life and death. And one of the most beautiful statements in this whole passage says, Aaron stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. And we're going to get to what that means in just a second. But many died because of Korah's rebellion, but many more were saved because of the grace of mediators that everybody had been grumbling against the whole time. All right, so what are we supposed to learn from all this? I got three kind of takeaway points for you here today, lessons that I want to make sure everybody gets. The first one, we're just going to call it move. Sometimes you got to move your tents, right? I said I was going to come back to this verse. This is so interesting to me. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, get away from there. The rebels, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And we know what happens here in context. What happens is the earth opens up, it swallows the rebels whole, and they die in judgment. There's a life principle in here too, though. You know what it is? There's always danger in setting your tents up close to people who openly defy God. There's examples of this in the Bible, close to this. Uh, If you go back into the book of Genesis, there's this guy Abraham and his nephew Lot. And uh, Abraham and Lot are so prosperous that he says, okay, we need to divide up our herds because we don't have enough grass to pasture for all of our herds and all of our men. Abraham says to Lot, why don't you go and choose whichever place that you want? And what Lot does is he looks around east, west, north, south, and he sees this fertile region located by an ancient, notoriously wicked city named Sodom. And it's from that moment on that Lot's spiritual life completely tanks. You know why? Lot was very well-intentioned. You know why his spiritual life tanks? Because he made a very poor choice about where he was going to set up his tents in life. I know a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out where they are going to physically live and find the right place. The Bible cares much, much, much more about where you spiritually choose to set up your tents in life. Very early on in my ministry, I was working with a woman who was a lifelong Christian She was Christian family, Christian schools. She ended up marrying a really nice guy, but he was an an avowed atheist. And uh, I had done some counseling with her for a couple other things, and she kept bringing this topic up. And so I tried to, without any judgment, I tried to ask her about it. I said, well, how, you know, how does that make you feel? How do you process your husband's lack of spiritual life? Like, that seems like it's having an effect on you. And she paused, she thought, and then she very confidently volunteered this. And it, it took me aback. She said, 
I just don't feel like God would ever send him to hell. He's a good man, and he's been really good to me. Now, as a young pastor, it took me aback to hear such a non-Orthodox statement coming from a lifelong Christian. And what I did is I, I was just very carefully worked with her, and I said, you know, I get it. You love this man who has cared for you very deeply, but you have come to a conviction about God, a theological conviction. You changed a conviction about God, not based on the Bible, but based on who you have set up your tents close to in life. Now, I'm going to tell you, that story ended up really well. This is a guy that I thought hated me at one point. I was a little uncomfortable, and I thought he did not like me at all, and I eventually baptized him. Uh, and it's a really happy, I'm happy about those stories. But it was a very clear lesson to me at the time. And I'll tell you what, he would say the same thing today. It's a clear illustration to me about where you set up your tents in life and how it affects your faith and whether or not you are consumed by the thinking of this world. I want to show you a really interesting visualization. I know it's, it's tough in the morning to see on the screen. It's kind of a washed out image. But remember, we said Korah was from the tribe of Levi. The Levites camped in different families, smaller tents. So uh, Korah was from the family of Kohath. See if you can find the tiny little tent for the Kohathites. Now, this is metaphorical. They had more than one tent. But it's imaged on there by a little tent. And then also see if you can find the Reubenites, because the Reubenites were the leaders, were the ones where Dathan and Abiram came from. So Korah from the Kohathites, Dathan and Abiram, also rebellion leaders from the Reubenites. Did you find where they are? Boom, right there. The rebellion that started by leaders of those two camps, did it happen by coincidence? No, it happened because of proximity. This should be a visual illustration to all of us about where we set up our spiritual tents in life and who we set them up next to. If you're dating right now, how close are you going to allow your heart to be open to uh, somebody who is maybe antagonistic towards the Christian faith? I'm not even going to answer that question for you. That's a question that you have to come to a conviction on your own about. But I'm saying, what lesson do we learn from this? Who are you going to have as your best friends, your closest friends in life where you set your tents up? What about where you physically live? That's a spiritual choice. It affects you, who you keep as neighbors and community and stuff like that. Where are you going to set up your tents? The Israelites, they were told exactly this is where you're going to camp. You get a choice. So you and I are empowered by Christ to choose wisely in these things, okay? Some of us, maybe there's some moments in life right now where we got to move some tents, right? Uh, another lesson in here, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, when we talked about Miriam and Aaron disrespecting Moses and his wife, we talked about death and disrespect. Now, here's the thing. In the New Testament, God talks about God's people as a universal priesthood. That means we're all equally valuable and we're all equally used by the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean we all have the same role. So, like, parents have a unique amount of authority in their households, and teachers have unique authority in their classrooms, and managers have some unique authority in their places of employment, and pastors and elders have some unique authority in the church, and uh, civil servants have some unique authority in the city and the state and in the, the, the nation. We all have different roles. See, there's a hierarchy of leadership and headship, but it doesn't exist to the detriment of equality. It exists for the prosperity and progress and peace of humanity because we're all different parts in the body, but we all have different roles. And even a triune God himself submits to the concept of hierarchy. Don't we see that between the son and the father? Okay, so we all have these like God-given roles. 
And yet, when we look at a lesson like this, where a nation of Israelites, a couple people, some prominent people are disrespecting their spiritual leaders, I, wa- I do want to say, I get what it looks like when you have a pastor teaching a lesson about respecting ministers. Like, I get kind of how that comes off. And it's going to be like, all right, this ministry leader is telling me if I disrespect ministry leaders, God is going to send disaster and cause the earth to open up and send out fire and swallow. You know, like, I get, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't even like teaching on this stuff. Like, it's uncomfortable. Not to mention the whole responsibility issue. Saying, like, God, hold me accountable for a bunch of people's spiritual welfare. Like, again, Moses didn't want to do that. Who wants to be in charge of two million souls? who grumble against you all the time. I can't imagine that. There's no faster way to suck pleasure out of life than to just add a ton of responsibility to your life, right? But even as somebody who's like a spiritual leader amongst like hundreds, I get it. And the only reason I'm standing up here teaching it today is not because I enjoy it so much, but because it's in God's word and spiritual leadership is a biblical reality that God's people need to hear about. We see what happens when there's disrespect. When it was Miriam and Aaron to Moses, when it was Korah's rebellion, read through 2 Kings 2 sometime. There's a bunch of teens who are very disgruntled and upset, and they make fun of God's prophet Elisha. And you know what he does? He has a bunch of bears come out of the woods and maul the teens. Like, at some point in time, it's got to become clear that if somebody is, in fact, a spiritual leader that God has called, a representative leader, that could be a parent in the home, a teacher in the classroom, a pastor or elder in the church, a civil servant, if that is a God-given responsibility, and you don't submit to that leadership, God often provides some kind of corrective consequences. I want to acknowledge one of the reasons it's so hard to respect those God-given leaders is because they're so deeply flawed. You know, Miriam and Aaron, they're supposed to follow the leadership of their younger brother, Moses. Miriam literally changed Moses' diapers. Now you're going to follow his leadership. You know, it's once you've changed someone's diapers, it becomes difficult to follow them as a leader. Aaron, he was more verbally eloquent than Moses was. He was in many ways more qualified to be the leader. But you know what? Christian ministry is not about human sensibility. It's about divine appointment. This is, by the way, every time I go through premarital counseling, every time I do a Christian wedding, and those are the only kind of weddings that I do, by the way, is Christian weddings. But uh, when I do Christian weddings and I meet with a Christian couple and I, we go through texts of the Bible that talk about marriage. And so whenever we get to Ephesians 5, if you're familiar with Ephesians 5 at all, it talks about love and respect and honor and submission and service and And uh, I can see, even if she won't say it, I can see a wife, you know, like the gears are turning and she's like, okay, I'm definitely smarter than this guy that I'm sitting next to. And you want me to submit to his spiritual leadership just because the Bible says so. I get it. I get it. I'm not here to tell you that you should submit to a spiritual leader because they're smarter than you. I'm living proof that they're often not. But I'm here to say that God is smarter than us. And therefore, we submit to them in these roles for divine reasons and learn that there's blessing in that. That brings us to the last point. Look at the leaders that they weren't submitting to and what they did. So standing between life and death, this this whole section ends in verses 41 through 50. We saw the Israelites after a national tragedy. They're very hurt. They've lost family members. They're very disgruntled. They're angry with Moses and Aaron. The glory of the Lord appears. It starts wiping out 
God is so upset, a plague starts moving through the nation and he's going to destroy all of them. But God's holy wrath, as it's entering into the camps, is sweeping through the tribes. But Moses turns to Aaron and he says, Aaron, grab your incense and run out and stand between the plague of God's wrath and between God's people. We're told Aaron stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. And if you're going to learn one thing of this entire text, the one thing that I want you to hear is this right here is a beautiful foreshadowing of the main message of Scripture. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Because there is going to come a mediator who's greater than Moses and a deliverer who's greater than Moses, a high priest who's greater than Aaron, and he is going to run and stand between us and death. And you know what? What Aaron is doing right here is exactly what Jesus did for you and me at Calvary. For all of our grumbling, for all of the bad choices we've made in our lives that were more about desire than they were out of really rational thought, for all of our rebellion against what we knew to be God's will, God would have every right to destroy us. But the main message of the Bible that he didn't because he loves us and sent a mediator to get destroyed in our place. And he runs between us and death. And he offers a sweet-smelling sacrifice that calms the wrath of God. And he's so much better than Moses and Aaron. You know why? Because Aaron ran and he stood between us and death, but Jesus died between us and death. He loved us enough to be swallowed up by the earth for three days in a tomb. He loved us enough to be scorched by the fires of God's wrath and hell for us at the cross. He loved us enough at the cross to take the punishment for all our rebelling and in rising from the grave, he has ensured our salvation. So for the sake of Jesus Christ, you and I, yeah, we are in the wilderness right now, no doubt. But he is guiding us to a land flowing with milk and honey. He is guiding us towards a promised land. I know it's rough right now and I'm confident it gets better for the sake of a risen savior. You're going to a place it's not just that you're going to be more mature and you won't grumble anymore. You're going to a place where every tear is wiped away, every pain is sucked out of your body, and you won't ever even dream of grumbling. So what do you do right now in the wilderness? One, we got to move together as a tribe. we got to move forward as God's people together. And we need to remind each other to make every effort to replace all of your complaints about the flaws of this wilderness. Replace that with praise for the forthcoming paradise, because that praise is a sweet-smelling aroma to our Redeemer. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, for your sake and for your sacrifice at the cross, we know exactly where we're going. Help us move forward together with no grumbling, but only songs of praise that glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.